Hello there from Istanbul in Turkey. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. And today the show is going to be slightly different. My buddy Stefan Avera from the very cool Stefan Avera podcast is taken over as host and he's going to be asking me about my experience in Venezuela and the reality of Bitcoin adoption in the once richest country in South America. But before that, let's get a message from all my amazing sponsors. So firstly, it's a new month and I've got a new sponsor, Sat Street, and I met these over in Uruguay in December. Now Sat Street is the easiest way to send Bitcoin to everyone you know. With Sat Street, you can gift Bitcoin to your friends and family by email and you can send as little as one at Sat for free. Not only that, SatStreet gives you many ways to earn Bitcoin by bringing together all the top referral programs in the industry into one place. SatStreet will also reward you for every person you invite that earns Bitcoin. Newcomers get to learn about Bitcoin and earn Sats at the same time, and you get rewarded for helping grow the network, which is pretty cool, right? So if you want to earn Bitcoin while helping Bitcoin grow, make sure you check out SatStreet today by visiting satstreet.com, which is S-A-T-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. And also with tax season upon us, have you checked out Cointracker yet? I've mentioned in a couple of the previous shows that this as a sponsor has triggered a few people. People have questioned why I'm allowing a tax company to advertise on a podcast. And look, the reality of tax, whether you like it or not, it is something that you have to pay. It is something that you are obliged to pay in your own country. And if you don't, you do face the potential of prosecution from your local government. Yes, I know it's all bullshit. I know we don't want to pay tax. But the reality is some exchanges are now being subpoenaed by government authorities. So listen, it's your choice. You want to pay your tax, pay it. You don't want to pay your tax, don't. I do. I don't want to deal with that shit. And this year I use Cointracker to calculate my tax. So easy to do. So easy to connect my wallets and my exchanges. And within like two minutes, my tax was calculated for me. Filings work for the US, UK, Canada and Australia. And it's free for users who have 200 or fewer transactions. If you're not, if you've got more transactions than that, well, they've got a 10% discount for the listeners of this show. Just head over to cointracker.io forward slash A forward slash WBD. There is an app available in the Apple and Android app stores, but if you want to use the service, head over to the website, which is cointracker.io, which is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.io. And we're also just a couple of months away from consensus where everyone in the industry will be descending on New York for beers and Bitcoin. Consensus always manages to bring together some of the biggest names both in and outside of the industry, from Hester Pierce to Brian Armstrong, Jack Dorsey, and so many, many more. From keynote speakers to evening parties, Consensus is always a great opportunity to learn about the latest in Bitcoin and hang out with some of your friends in the family. This year will be no different. Already announced speakers include Elise Killeen, Caitlin Long, Zach Prince, Serge Cotelier, and Will Reeves confirming that there will be a whole bunch of Bitcoiners making it to New York. And just like the last two years, I will be there. So if you want to hang out, talk Bitcoin and grab a beer, then make sure you are in New York for this year's event. And they also have a discount for the listeners of this show. By using the code BitcoinDid, you can get $200 off the ticket price. So if you want to join me in New York, if you want to hang out at Consensus, just head over to consensus2020.com, which is C-O-N-S-E-N-S-U-S 2020.com. 
Okay, so onto the show, and this is another slightly different show today. I did a little prep recently by making myself the guest of the show, had my engineer Danny question me about Bitcoin, and then following my experience in Venezuela, I've been discussing what happened there, both inside the country and the reality of, let's say, Bitcoin and crypto adoption. Now, trying to tell the story on Twitter has proved difficult, and even though there were many Venezuelan locals who, who agreed with my key takes, there have been quite a few who were triggered by my experience, including an open letter from the Dashcourt CEO. So rather than sit there fighting out on Twitter, I reached out to my buddy and fellow podcaster, Stefan Levera, and asked him to take over as host of the show this week so I could explain my experience in what was South America's once richest country. Now, you'll often hear that Venezuela is the perfect use case for Bitcoin, whether it's used to hedge against hyperinflation or mine to earn an income, or just used to send money back into the country. There are marketing videos on YouTube from cryptocurrencies, which highlight the difficulty of life within the country and the collapse of the banking system, which is usually followed by a shiny example of how crypto is the solution. So my experience was very different and I think the reality is different from these marketing videos which can be quite misleading as to what the opportunity is within Venezuela and you know what I don't even like using the word opportunity but I'll explain that in the interview. So recently while I was out in South and Central America I took a trip to the border town of Cucuta before entering Caracas to see with my own eyes what life is like in Venezuela and to understand the reality of crypto adoption and whether Bitcoin can really help. What I found didn't exactly fit with the regular narrative, and while there are use cases and Bitcoin can help some, the opportunity really is exaggerated. So to discuss my experience while in Venezuela, I'm again taking hot seat, and Stefan is going to ask me about what I saw and my experience, and also my perspective. If you do have any questions about this show, then feel free to reach out to me. I always pretty much answer anyone, and my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Just a quick note, I am currently out in Turkey. I've been covering the border crisis with Greece. I'm going to be here for a couple more days before I head back to Bedford. It looks like I won't be going to Africa next month just due to coronavirus. I've decided I'm going to delay that trip, let this whole thing blow over first. It could be quite some time. It's quite a weird situation to follow, actually. But yeah, I'm not going to be doing that. I will, though, be heading to Bitcoin 2020 at the end of the month, should that still be on, which should be pretty cool. And as I said, if you've got any questions about the show, do feel free to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Peter, welcome to What Bitcoin Did. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guest host of What Bitcoin Did. <laughs> uh, listen, right. look, I appreciate you doing this. So I wanted to get the story out of my experience going to the Venezuela border and into Venezuela, but I, I didn't want to do it as a monologue. Uh, I wanted someone to grill me, and there's no better person to ask than you, my fellow podcaster, guest host of What Bitcoin Did today. So thank you for doing this. Oh, of course. It's uh, my pleasure. So uh, look, so we're going to talk through... Your experience recently with your travel and you went to Venezuela and then there's the border town and we've got Colombia. So I guess this is what we can uh, cover. But let's just start with why did you want to go to Venezuela? Yeah, great question. A uh, couple of reasons. So there's the Bitcoin reason and then there's the general reason. My first broad awareness of Venezuela obviously came from Bitcoin. I mean, obviously I was aware of the country, but I mainly... Could, took an interest back in June, I think it was actually May 2018, where I was introduced to Alejandro Macado, 
He writes for Caracas Chronicles, wanted to talk about what's happening in Venezuela and can Bitcoin help. And so we met up in London and recorded a show. And ever since, I've taken an interest in what's happened in Venezuela. I think I've done three shows now about it. But I think as Bitcoiners, we're very quickly to jump at opportunities. In some ways, I think we can be classed as... Opportunist is a kind of a negative word, but we spot opportunities. Whether that's Tony Hawk tweeting about Bitcoin, then suddenly everybody wanting to, you know, speak to him, or or whether it's somebody saying about an opportunity in Venezuela. Whenever there's an opportunity for Bitcoin, we all seem to just suddenly pile in and take an interest. So I've taken interest in Venezuela for Bitcoin, and I wanted to go out there and just see the reality. But also, you know, I have this other show, Defiance. There's been protests in Venezuela. There's obviously a very screwy political situation at the moment. So I, I also wanted to go and just see what's happening in the country, just at a social level as well. So I kind of went for both, primarily Bitcoin, but also just to see what's happening in the country. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about your process of researching it. Weren't you a little scared of going there that, you know, you might, you know, the government might stop you or it might be unsafe or something like that? Yeah, definitely. Was a little bit scared up front because I think I had the third highest murder rate in the world at some point. Um, The picture I had of Venezuela was a country in absolute chaos, descended into absolute chaos and um, almost Mad Max style. But it wasn't like that when I got there, which was great. But yes, I was was slightly nervous, um, but I did my research and the two primary things were to have a local fixer to look after you to make sure you're in the right areas at the right time and if you're in the wrong areas how you know how you should behave so when we went to the slums for example you don't have your windows you don't have your windows down with a camera out filming but when you're in east caracas you can you know take a photo with your phone where in west caracas you keep your phone in your pocket because it'll get snatched so there's there were simple things like that and you know at night time where should you go where you can go out where you can't which is yeah, after dark, you really you just don't want to go out. So there's having a local fixer to look after you, which was good, which I had uh, had set up, who picked us up from the airport, um, and even to the point where at the airport it was be careful. There's a, there was a story of an Egyptian man who got shot outside the airport, so you know shot and killed. So there's things like that you have to be aware of. You know you can't be naive about these things. You you, you know it's not worth dying for. Yeah. Uh, and then the second side is going in as a, I say pseudo journalist. Con- let's say content creator. There is not a free press within Venezuela. They don't want any anti-government messages related to the rest of the world. I mean, I've seen that since I I did a short interview with Max Kaiser about the experience that went up on RT, and I have had a flood of people directing messages at me over this last 24 hours, which is clearly... uh, government propaganda or you know people who, who who are either there's some loyalist chavista who who refuses to admit the reality of what's happening in Venezuela or or they're just part of the government but that that's flood of propaganda's come my way but so we had to plan going in carefully I, when I travel the world I don't know about you do, do you take your gear with you yeah, I mean, for me, I take you know the Zoom and some microphones. I tend to travel relatively light, though. But I know you took uh, some video, or you were aiming to take some video. 
Yeah, so I was aiming to take video, but my normal travel for the podcast, I've, I've got one of those Pelican cases, those hard cases, and that essentially has three mic stands, three mics, the Zoom, the cables and everything in, and that just goes travels the world with me. And then on this trip, I also took a DSLR camera, a Rode mic for the DSLR, a couple of lenses, and a microphone for my iPhone as well and, and a, a gimbal for my iPhone. So I took all the video equipment, which were, which I was using in Chile for the, the riots in Santiago. Now, what I was told is if you take all this equipment into Venezuela, it's going to be very suspicious. You'll probably get uh, one or two things that happen. You'll get turned away at the border because it's very obvious you're a journalist or you will have to pay a significant bribe to get in. And to be honest, going in was more important than, than not. So what I did is I left all the equipment in Bogota at our hotel. It was a bit of a bit of a palaver because we were trying to figure out because I was going to El Salvador afterwards. So I was thinking, can I get the equipment shipped to El Salvador? Can I get someone to fly it to El Salvador? What I ended up doing is I, I left all my equipment, all my audio equipment at the hotel. I also had a cameraman who joined me, uh, Adrian, who joined me for Colombia, Venezuela, and El Salvador, and we left the majority of his equipment. So. We took an iPhone each, which, by the way, now the iPhone 11, uh, I've got the Pro Max, and but the iPhone 11 can create broadcast quality video, which is great. So we took one of those each. I had my mobile uh, iPhone microphones. You can get these ones that just plug in. And we took a DSLR each. But when we got to Venezuela, we went through immigration separately rather than together as two guys. It looks too same. obvious. We, yeah, it looks too obvious. Um, so he, you know, he said he's a photographer, and I went in as a, um, you know, somebody who works in marketing, you know, which historically I do, and I'm here as a tourist, which I, in some ways, I was there as a tourist as well. But yeah, anyway, there was a couple of times I was nervous. I was nervous at immigration. They were tough. They did ask the questions firmly. They did look at you with a huge amount of suspicion. But that was fine. We we got in and we got through, so that was fine. But yeah, so mainly the couple of things to prepare was how we get the equipment, what we can take, and uh, safety. Yeah. And so where did you land? Did you land and then uh, like go across the border on like a bus or a train, that kind of thing? Or did you land directly there? Yeah, we landed directly there. So we, the day before, we went. so we went to Colombia stayed overnight in Colombia and then we took a flight to Cucuta for the border but then we flew back that same night we didn't cross it at Cucuta although we did get filmed by Maduro's guards which I'll explain in a, in a bit <laughs> but then we we stayed again back in Bogota and then we flew into Caracas and that itself was an experience I tell you a couple of things that stood out for me as as we were flying in well firstly even before that booking your flights so there are three airlines you could book. There were a couple of domestic airlines, Laser, and I can't remember the other one, but the other one has been sanctioned now uh, or blacklisted by the Aviation Authority uh, due to you know, safety. So I was like, well, I'm not flying with you. <laughs> the second is Laser, who have grounded a number of their planes for problems. Yeah, my dad was an aircraft engineer, and there are certain airlines or certain aircraft he always said just don't fly on because... Yeah, air safety is incredibly safe, but it's incredibly safe because of the due diligence and the processes that they have in place. And if you know, if an economy is struggling and, and the airline doesn't have the money to maintain their planes, they're, they're cutting corners, and that's not a risk I want to take. There was a, a another airline called Wingo. I think that's part of Copa. That it was like an easy jet here, low, a low cost airline which flies four times a week. So we ended ended up flying with them. But there were a number of things like we nearly didn't make it for a number of reasons. So we were trying to get the equipment sorted 
and we were going to FedEx it. And we went to the FedEx place and then they couldn't take it. So our taxi driver had to then drive the equipment back to the hotel. But we were we had to get to the airport and we didn't want to risk missing uh, missing the flight. And there was so much traffic. So after FedEx, we got about 15 minutes away and we realised I left my passport in the FedEx place. Oh, no. And we were already cut it fine. Yeah, so then we had to go back and get that and we got the passport. Then when we got to the airport... We went to check in, and I didn't have a ticket, even though I'd booked it. So it turned out they cancelled my ticket for for no reason. So then we had to book another ticket, and then we finally got through. But it was it was really cutting, you know, really cutting it fine to get through. But the thing I noticed most about when we land when we came into land is airports are brightly lit places. Yeah. There's a lot of light in airport, and this felt really dark coming in. Mm-hmm. There were lights but it felt dark. There wasn't a bright city. There wasn't a lot of light at the airport. And then when we got off the plane, that's when you started to notice just... There's lots of little things I noticed. So I'm going to go ahead and probably cover a thing that you would ask about, and we should go back and cover Kukata. But, you know, the airport was sparse. There were few staff. There was these weird massive posters which had which had monetary like different notes on them money notes on them which i thought that's what a weird thing to have in a country with such a fucked up financial system to have kind of money propaganda on the walls but but yeah everything was was sparse and that was a trend for the whole trip yeah so let's bring it back to kukata and the border town then so tell us a little bit about your experience there what kinds of people did you meet there yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And I'll tell you a bit about why I went there. I don't know if you remember Crypto Graffiti went there. Oh, I didn't know that, but I know yeah. of. I know of, yeah. And I don't know if you ever saw the stuff in the press about when Venezuela closed the border and there's that long bridge and it was empty and there was that big yellow container in the middle and they were saying people couldn't cross. Cucatar was crazy, by the way. But I, you know, I'd heard about this border town that was... A lot of people were coming from Venezuela uh, into Colombia to, for whatever reason, to buy things, to earn money, and I wanted to check it out. But I was given the impression it was a very, very dangerous place. Again, it didn't feel too dangerous when I was there, and maybe I'm being naive, but when we landed in Cucatar, we had a separate fixer there who picked us up, and he was explaining explaining the danger in, in that border town. Now, there are a lot of murders there. There is a lot of crime there. Um, and there were a lot of Venice, Venezuelan people who have come in. And you could see it. There was a huge, like a significant amount of people trying to clean your car windscreen at the, the traffic lights. Right. You know you get that in, in poor areas. But these people looked especially poor. You know, you could just see drained, grey faces. And he was also explaining that there's a lot of prostitution here. There's a lot of crime, you know. And Kukata hasn't always been the safest place, but now it's in, it, is, it's it is an unsafe place. Yeah, it's got a lot worse. So the first thing we did with him before we went right up to the border, he took us to an NGO that feeds around nine thousand people a day. And this would, I would say, was about a mile, maybe two miles from the border. And one of the other things that you have as you get nearer the border is you've got these so you've got the border itself which is the official crossing but you've also got these smuggling routes and the reason the smuggling routes exist is that there are certain goods that the uh, maduro regime will not allow into venezuela so you'll get stopped from bringing them in so these smuggling routes they're controlled by the paramilitaries 
and they allow people to essentially take things through by hand and you pay young, you pay people to take it through and sometimes there's guards the other end who other end who will accept a bribe so we started seeing just some of those people you know the fixer was explaining who these people were and what they were doing but the, not a huge amount of it and as we were driving through this this place just before we got right to the border you could also see into these homes and he was explaining you've got like 10 20 people living in a room there's a lot of people on the streets there was a little tent city quite similar to what you see in major cities now i mean i was in austin recently and you know you have them in san francisco los angeles got one i don't know if you've got them in sydney you've got them in london these it seems to be a, a a recent phenomenon over the last kind of decade that people are living in tents on streets. Um, there was one of those. There was a huge queue and, and of people, and he said they're basically queuing up to be fed. There were mothers sat on the side of the street, you know, breastfeeding. There were children running running around, but it felt. I guess it felt like I was in a refugee camp. I wasn't, but it felt like a refugee camp. It felt like what I see on the news when you see like a Syrian refugee camp. Yeah, Just very confronting. Lo- yeah, very confronting. It, it f- a very desperate situation. You know, a lot of misery, a lot of sadness. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. It, it, yeah, that was my first experience of something like that, and it t- did take me back. And then we got to the NGO and we went in, and essentially this started out originally as I think it was just like a hut that was feeding people, and now they have this whole facility that provides. 9,000 meals a day, around 9,000 meals a day, and medical facilities. Yeah. So we went in there, and that's where I, I, I met my – had my first interview, and I met a guy who essentially works there feeding people, uh, giving out the food, helping preparing give out the food. And he was just saying the situation is getting worse and worse. They, have, they, they cannot feed enough people, and the demand, the demand for people – like the amount of people they can't feed is growing – you yeah. just said it's it's a desperate situation what you what you would see in there was a very a strong contrast between the children and the adults yeah just all every adult looked weathered tired thin you know a lot of very thin looking people fed up desperate and then you had these kids running around who were all happy and smiles which is one of those unusual situations like kids just seem to be happy in any situation because they they don't understand the the gravity what's of what's going around on around them yeah and so yeah. how was uh, the ngo being funded is it donations is it government you know money or what was how what's the funding situation like there as i remember i, I yeah i can't remember the exacts but i i'm pretty sure it relies entirely on donations yeah I'm pretty sure it's entirely on donations it certainly wouldn't be uh, anything from the venezuelan government i'm not sure on the colombian government so one of the interesting things if most of the countries have shut their borders to venezuela because there's been such a, like a significant amount of migration and i asked the people in colombia i was like why has the colombian border not been shut and they said to me well we have a long relationship with venezuela no, there was a time where Venezuela was the richest country in South America, and we were a poor country, and we well, there was a lot of migration into uh, into Venezuela from Colombians who wanted to earn money and buy things. He said, "Now it's come the other way." He said, "It, it wouldn't be morally right for us to close the border to these people and, and shut them off of the world." That that has meant a lot of people have come into Colombia, and that's put a lot of pressure on Colombia. Interestingly, when I flew from Mexico into Colombia, there was a guy next to me. He was a French-Canadian guy, and he uh, was with his Colombian girlfriend. And she was very sympathetic towards the Venezuelan people, but she said the pressure is is getting really quite 
tough on the people of Colombia because they want to be sympathetic and help. But she said there are Venezuelan people coming to Colombia now and there a couple of things that happened. They're willing to work for, you know, do manual jobs for any kind of job for a, a half the price or even less than somebody in Colombia will do it. And the employers are taking advantage of this, which means a lot of Colombian people are either losing their jobs or not getting their jobs because they're losing them to the Venezuelan people. And she said that is creating some discontent now. That is that is upsetting people. That is, you know, that is they're starting to build a certain amount of resentment, which, you know, I think is understandable. But I, I do have to commend the people of Colombia. They, they have been very accommodating to the Venezuelan people and they've been a lifeline to them when other countries have closed their borders. So... Yeah, so, that, that was kind of interesting. Mm, right. And from what I understand, it's a common story that someone from Venezuela might try to leave and earn money outside and send it back home. And in this case, because it's a border town, there might also be smuggling of goods back home to their family. So can you tell us a little bit about that operation and how how that works? Yeah, so I think the best way to explain that is to to talk about the journey up to the border because it's... It's really interesting as a place. I mean, it's chaotic, but a couple of things stood out. One thing that stood out is that given the opportunity, people will learn to create an economy. And there is an economy in Kukata. And that is the people who can't earn money and make money in Venezuela have come here and this economy has sprung up, which shows that it, it could probably you'll probably give me some libertarian free market reason why this happens, and, and you'll, you'll be entirely right. But there's no restrictions on them. They can just come here, and there's people buying and selling different items and goods. You know, whether it's, you know, toilet I saw some, one lady walking back with a, a huge sack of toilet paper because perhaps she can't commodity. get toilet paper. It is. Perhaps she can't get it in Venezuela or perhaps it's really expensive in Venezuela. I, I don't know the answer, but I just saw that and, and that stood out. So there are all these people who've realized, right, if I can get a bit of money, I can go into Colombia, I can buy you know a bunch of toilet paper for X and I can sell it for Y. So there is this, this crazy economy that, that exists there. But what happens is that as you start driving in, a couple of people will started running up to the car. And I was like, well, that's a bit weird. He said, oh, don't worry, that's about the the... Uh, smuggler routes for the paramilitary which the paramilitary's control the f- closer you get to the border it gets insane hundreds of people are running at every car because what happens there are people who will take a taxi up to the border they've got a bunch of stuff they want to go to their family perhaps maybe even because there's a, an, an, another economy the other side I'm unaware of but for whatever reason there are people who take taxis up to the border with goods that need taken in and these are goods that have to be smuggled in all these people running up to the cars are so desperate to earn money. There isn't enough goods going across, so they're all competing. So they they'll run across. They'll run by the car. I've got some video of it. The people chasing the car because the second you open the door, they want that piece of business. And I don't know how much they earn, but it, you know, if they earn a dollar in a day, that would be a good day. So bear in mind that people in Venezuela, the, I've seen the the average salary per month ranges between two and five dollars a month. The average, which is Fucking ridiculous, right? Yeah. So if you're earning a dollar in a day, that's amazing. So perhaps they're doing it for half a dollar. I, I don't really know, but they're all so desperate. But as you get closer to the border, you've literally got hundreds of people running at the car. But before we went up to the border, we we went and visited another NGO. And I, I told this story a couple of times because it really stood out to me. So this NGO, there was nobody in there at that point. But again, they provide meals and education. So we went into this, you know, through these gates 
and it was essentially a courtyard which could probably have about 300 people sat comfortably. There was uh, a set of bathrooms, a kitchen, and then there was this kind of covered area within a courtyard, which was like a school. It had a blackboard, it had a, a uh, some shelving full of books, and that really stood out to me. Um, I've got a friend who works at the at the UN, and when I go to New York, she's she's given me a tour of the UN. Which, by the way, if you ever go and you want to do the tour, let me know. If, I'll, I'll take you because it's fascinating. One of the things she showed me there is they have these boxes which are a school in a box so if if there is a a, you know a war or a crisis you know you know refugee camps are popping up they take these they deliver these schools in a box you know like the big case the size of a desk but they can drop those into zones so people that schools can spring up so children can still be educated and that's what i really liked about this ngr is like it's not just trying to feed people it's trying to maintain education for the children which i think shows a real deep care for the future of those people. Yeah. But when we went in, there was nobody in there. It was it was empty. Apart from one guy who was there with his, turns out his wife and his baby. And we were setting up our camera equipment because we were going to interview the director of the NGO. And he was waving me over and then started talking to me in Spanish. And I don't speak Spanish, so my cameraman translated. But he said, are you doing interviews? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, can you interview me? And I, I didn't understand what he was saying, but he was crying as he said it. And he, he was saying, people have to know what's going on in Venezuela. I want to tell the story. So I said, yeah, fine, fine, of course, no problem. So this this guy, he, he's got four children. Three are living in Venezuela with his um, parents. Um, but his newborn baby and his wife are with him. And they made the decision, because there was no work where they were in Venezuela, they made the decision to come to Cucuta for him to find work. And, and send money. The, send money back, send food back, you know, send whatever. Just send, they kept saying rice, but you know, whatever to send back because the mother and father can't work. And he'd been there a week and couldn't find any work. So he was really desperate. They were living on the street. So this is a, yeah, they're in their 20s. They've got a baby that's less than a year old, say nine months old, and they're, they're sleeping on the street. That This is this is where I get really fucking annoyed with these assholes on Twitter who come and start arguing that you're a liar, you're spreading propaganda, you know, you 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 didn't really see uh, Venezuela. You you're just trying to support an uh, American coup, blah blah blah. It's like no, I I saw a guy in tears who was explaining to me that him and his wife and his newborn, well, new, not newborn, but uh, I'd say this baby was six to nine months old, are living on the street. And he said, every night you sleep with one eye open because people will try and steal your clothes from you at night. And he was crying, telling this story. It was very, very emotional. It affected me quite a lot. And then after the interview was done, um, this is the bit I've told people. I was like, I've got to give this guy some money, right? And it's one of these things that I guess the more you do this, you probably, it becomes a habit you might do less. But you can't help but just want to give him some money. So I had, yeah. I had like 100 bucks in my pocket. I was like, I'll give him 60 bucks, right? So anyway, at the end of the interview, I checked. I said, "Is it okay to give him money?" And I said, "Yeah." And I, I gave him sixty bucks, and he he collapsed in my arms, like just wrapped them around me. And I've never had somebody hold me so tight. And his eyes were streaming. Whereas, like sixty bucks, I mean, you know, what does that buy you? It doesn't even buy you a pair of trainers, right? And if you needed some new trainers, Stefan, today, you just go and buy them. You wouldn't, think right? Yeah, it, right? I mean, you think you wouldn't think that hard about it, right? So. No, you've probably had a steak once that's cost 60, 60 bucks, right? Not even thought about it. And it turns out, I said to the guys, like, look, I know that's a lot of money, but like, what's the reality of that? He said, well, 
his family, his whole family can now eat for three months. He can go home, he'll be with his kids, and, you know, they're good for three months. Which, which is kind of, whilst it's kind of obvious, to actually go through that process of, you know, 60 bucks is nothing to you or I, but to see how that changed someone's life and to see the almost the worry drain from his face, that really affected me. Yeah, and I think... So, yeah. Because in your mind as well, at that time, you're thinking, well, I want to help people, but I can't help them all, right? Yeah, there was no way I was going to suddenly go to the bank and then distribute money to everyone. for a cu- I mean, I, I gave you know, a few bits of money away here or there, but I, you would just be hounded and potentially put yourself in a dangerous situation. You know, we were in a private situation, and, you know, he had a baby with him. Another thing that struck me is that they, every now and again, there were kids running in and out. They were letting them in like one or two at a time. And what was happening? The kids were coming in and they were coming to the taps to drink water and then leaving and and also washing themselves. But even getting water is quite difficult there. And so they were just constantly... The, the kids knew they could come to this place and they could drink water. And then I, I also then... The, my fixer, he also... So this is also when I did my first experience of Bitcoin. So there were two things. And I'm trying to be as objective as possible about Bitcoin and the opportunity in Venezuela. I almost don't want to look at it and say the opportunity for Bitcoin because I don't want to be opportunist about, be an opportunist about Bitcoin. Yeah. I want to almost come at the angle as how can we help them? If Bitcoin can help, great, but rather than look at it as an opportunity for Bitcoin. Do you see? Do you understand the, the, the Right, difference? I mean, it's it's more just like Bitcoin will just get adopted naturally. It's not like it needs anyone to go out there and shill it and say, yeah, use this. It's just... Yeah, and it's yeah. more in the general case of what can be done as opposed to like, oh, let me shield my Bitcoin to you guys. Yeah, and perhaps if I didn't have Defiance, I would have gone there and looked for the opportunity of Bitcoin. But now I have Defiance, I wanted to go and see what the story is, what the truth is, and, and relay that back. So these were my first two experiences of Bitcoin. Firstly, they had a donation poster on the wall. And all that said to me is, we need money to run. We rely on donations. We will take your Bitcoin. But I almost certainly would say they would take your Dentacoin. All they're going to do is they're going to convert whatever you send them into dollars so they can buy food and the necessities and pay people to actually – well, I don't know if they're volunteers or paid, but to actually run the center. That's the entire entire role of Bitcoin there. It's a way to get money to them easily. Probably easier than via the banks. That said, my fixers um, didn't want paying in Bitcoin. They wanted – they wanted paying in cash or PayPal, which they can they can do both. They neither wanted Bitcoin. Um, so Bitcoin for me in that instance, it was just the the all it is is please give us Bitcoin because we want to we want to get dollars. So the second thing was the the my fixer was running a he's a Bitcoiner. He was running a session to teach people about Bitcoin. So after we did the interview with the director, about thirty people came in and sat down and they had a lesson. About a Bitcoin lesson. And what was really interesting about that is like, again, I have to be as objective as possible. You know, it's 30 people sat there that they're all very poor, you know, extremely, you know, this is extreme poverty. And they're sat there having a lesson about Bitcoin, being taught about that, you know, various things like you're your own bank. This is how you manage your private keys, etc. And I was watching them and it... I think it would be very different from a Stefan Levera course where you would have a bunch of people sat there attentive, keeping notes, 
you know, willing to engage and learn. I think these people have got two things. They've got time on their side. You know, their, their day is filled with is about survival, earning money, finding food. But there are a lot of people just sitting around doing nothing, like a lot of people just sitting around doing nothing. So they've got time on their side to fill it. And also somebody saying this is, this is something to do with money. <laughs> This is a, a way you can get money in and out of, uh, of of Venezuela, but these people were not hugely engaged as a group. Some were, but I didn't imagine they're all going to leave and go. Oh wow, this is amazing—a new decentralized form of money that can take down the central banks, and I can, you know, I can become self-sovereign. I better start stacking sats. That is, <laughs> of course, not. Th- and they're not in the role. They're not in the position for that. It would be more, no. as I see it, more like maybe on the margin. Some people might use it to move some money around, and that's that's kind of it for now in that scenario. Yeah, it, it, he, I think he was. I think the main lesson was: look, this is remittance. If you need it, if you need to send some money back into Venezuela, because a lot of people don't have bank accounts now, they can't get bank accounts. Um, so. You know, if you're taking money across to a board from the, the other side of Kukuta, the, the border town, the other side, fine, you can just transport dollars. But say you've, your family's in Caracas and it's far away, you, if you want, you, you could buy some Bitcoin, send it to them, you know, and, and you can do it without a bank account. Th- that is certainly a use case. It's, it does certainly exist. But, that, but there are some realities that really stood out. So firstly, what was explained to me is some of these people are sharing phones. Okay, mm. so if you're sharing a phone, that's not an ideal scenario for holding Bitcoin, right? Even if they have a phone of their own, almost none of them have data services. So they rely on being able to connect to some kind of Wi-Fi. And also, they don't always have access to power to charge their phone. And that is yeah. a reality. So I don't see these people as a, a, really as a, a, a massive opportunity for Bitcoin. I just see it as... Like here was a scenario, a guy was running a class, and that's very cool. I don't imagine many of them left that class and suddenly were using Bitcoin. But I don't even know if you know. One of the things I should have asked is like, you're setting these people up. Are you giving them a few sats to get going? So, and 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 then also to throw into that, like I said to you, if these people earn a dollar in a day, like that's amazing. But what is the commission they would pay on? turning that dollar into Bitcoin. Then if they have to then send that Bitcoin into Venezuela, what is the the fee? You know, say the fee is at 20 cents. And then what is the fee to send it at the other, the, the other end? Like big, these people are at, you know, cups of coffee levels of money and sub cups of coffee level of money. And we've always said Bitcoin isn't for cups of coffee. Do they have access to lightning? Can they understand lightning? So you start to realize like this, this isn't the opportunity, you know, Perhaps there are some. There's a very small minority. But that's why I was, you know, I put out that punchy title of Bitcoin doesn't fix Venezuela because you, you when you start to see this, you're like, these people just need dollars and bolivars. Yes, there will be some people who can learn about Bitcoin, but yeah. So yeah, after that that experience, I, I, I this became I, I kind of realized this trip was a lot a lot more about learning about Venezuela and you know get an understanding of the country and the next thing we went up to the border and we were told not to take the cameras but the guy from the NGO said he would come and that would be fine and actually it was because everybody loves the NGO 
And one of the great things about this economy here, it isn't each man for himself as such. They, they're all working together to try and earn money to help people back in Venezuela. They're, yeah. you know, they're all competing to earn that money, but they're all ultimately wanting to help each, each other out. As you get closer and closer to the border, it gets a bit more chaotic. There are just people everywhere doing all kinds of things. There's taxis, there's little stalls selling everything. And like, like, interestingly, like there was a sweet stall, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, even in this scenario, there was, there's there's a sweet stall to buy sweets for the kids, which I thought was cool. But it what you were seeing was it wasn't like fruit and veg. And I did think about that too much at the time, but my assumption is that that's the stuff you can grow and you know, create yourself. And I, I, I'm going to make an assumption here, and I should double-check this, but I'm going to make an assumption in Venezuela people are growing a lot of their own food now. Cause right, you, you because that's to, just literally one of the cheaper ways to do it. Yeah, and actually maybe when I was out in um, Cambodia, I remember one of my taxi drivers telling me he has a rice paddy, and every year they, you know, they – they harvest their rice and they keep it in the shed and they, they survive off that all year. And he said a lot of people do this. So I imagine a lot of people in Venezuela, I, again, I could be completely wrong, but I imagine they grow their own food. So I didn't see fruit and vegetables being sold. I saw toiletries, sanitary products, razors, you know, like I said, toilet paper, biscuits. Yeah. Um, all things that are all... hard to get in Venezuela, they are very in high demand in and traded yes. and smuggled on the border, right? Yeah. Uh, so... So that's all being bought and sold in these kind of stalls. And and then we went past and went right up to the border. And it's just a constant stream of people coming in and out, including people in school uniform. Yeah, that's, so kids coming wow. Yeah, kids coming across. And what I was told was that perhaps might be a slightly wealthier person who's sending their child across into Colombia to get an education. Wow. And they I, live in Venezuela, me. but then they cross the border every day for school. Yeah. Crazy stuff, this, man. And apparently 50,000 a day cross, and I, I don't know that exact number. And then when we got right up to where the border was, there was a like a tunnel, like a man-made tunnel, not a tunnel, like a, like a covered area where all the immigration were checking your papers and people coming in and out. And then there the, were the Madura guards, and they started filming us, filming them, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so why were they filming? Like, because we're people with cameras. Just in case people, you were doing something yeah. nefarious, I think they, you know, these these dictators, they have to hold on to power. Yeah, and to hold on to power, they have to take control of institutions, the press. The, right, you know, the there's a lot of things they have to. Yeah, the messaging, and I think ultimately they're suspicious of some people with some cameras, and they were filming us, and they looked menacing. They certainly looked menacing. But I was like, fuck it, we should film them. I mean, they didn't have guns. Well, I didn't see their guns. Maybe they did. They probably did, actually, being naive. But so anyway, so that was that. You know, we we saw people under the bridge running down and, and running through the smuggling routes. Yeah, um, yeah. Which was Now, I'm curious, one more question around the smuggling. What yeah. was the currency of choice? I'm going to take a guess and say US dollar was the main kind of thing that everybody wants. Is that what they would kind of take as their currency? So there's actually three currencies, primary currency. Well, there's five currencies in Venezuela. He said, this is the guy, the guy said on the way, he said, my fixer said, we're the only country with five currencies. And their five currencies are the Bolivar, which is the local currency, which is yeah, 10% inflation every week. There's the dollar, which is their 
let's call it their stable note rather than their stable coin because it's yeah, <laughs> their stable currency. Yeah. Um, and you have to, everyone accepts the Bolivar. Not everyone accepts the dollar, but most people do and they want it. But the problem with the dollar is you might be buying something that's five cents, 10 cents. So a dollar is useful if you can't get change or you might get your change in Bolivar. Uh, it's a divisibility a problem. Massive divisibility problem. The Colombian peso yep. is, a, is a currency. Is it the peso in Colombia? I think so. The petro, the mother of all shit coins, <laughs> and, 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 and Bitcoin. So right. they're the five currencies. On the border, it is really the Colombian peso, the Bolivar, and the dollar. Now, people will use any of them and accept any of them, but there is a need for the Bolivar because you have to have Bolivar because everyone accepts it, and you need that for change with the dollar. People want the dollar. Uh, and but we'll also use the Colombian peso. Yeah, interesting stuff. Okay, so yeah. so uh, you, I presume you didn't actually go through the border at that point. This was just no. visiting it and seeing it from one side. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, and the ATM. We didn't see the ATM machine. I think that was that's been taken away for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, we, it was just a case of you know, and and it is crazy. Um, it, it is, it's a life changing experience seeing something like that. You know, we're, we're very. We're very fortunate to to live the lives we live in, you know, places like Australia, UK, you know, US. We can moan about it a lot, but this is a complete breakdown of society. Uh, uh, you know, and and you do see a mixture of sadness and happiness. It's it's really strange, but yeah, that was a that was an experience. So, so from there we flew back. We got the last flight back to Bogota and stayed the night, and then flew into Caracas. And the start of that journey was being picked up by our fixer uh, and being taken to our hotel. Uh, and again, an- another strange experience. So, you know, I was I asked where to stay and I was recommended stay at the Renaissance. That is in the safest part of the city. That is where all the politicians and the business people, that's where they all stay. It's the safest, it's the best hotel. And, you know, Renaissance is a good brand. You know, globally it's recognised as a, a very high standard hotel. But there were just some... It, it it was a good hotel, but it, it still felt, I would say, it felt a bit like a, but like a Hilton when you were in it, not like a Renaissance. Um, just little things really stood out, and then this was an exp- okay. This was an exp- something I started noticing the whole time I was there. So when we got to Caracas Airport and we got through customs, all the toilets were locked. Wow. So why, why, yeah, why are the toilets are locked? So eventually one showed me one that was open, but I'm imagining there's a limited number of staff to maintain the toilets. I didn't use a sing, find a single toilet in Venezuela. Maybe this is, you know, just before, if somebody listens to this, they might jump down my throat. And I'm just saying I didn't find soap in a single toilet. Wow, so everyone's just yeah. washing their hands with water and that's it? Yeah. Now this night might not be yeah you know, my bathroom in the hotel had soap but the toilet in Caracas didn't and the toilets in a restaurant I went into didn't I don't know if soap is something that's hard to get hold of or it's a luxury that they just don't spend the money it's on just too expensive. there was no soap yeah, yeah. I, I don't know I mean so that stood out um we had a beer our bottles of beer were just really small <laughs> Okay, you know, so like so like half the size of a standard beer or what are we talking like a two, like 200 mils Wow, yeah. I think I think a standard beer bottle is what like like a Budweiser, like three thirty. Yeah, something like that. there might be like three, yeah, three fifty, four hundred ish. But yeah, two hundred mil. I guess it's it's like shrink mils. it's it's shrinkflation, but just on another yeah. level. 
Yeah, uh, the little bottles of water are about the same size. When we went for dinner, the, the restaurant in the hotel was empty. When we went for breakfast, and again, this stands out, and this is going to this is going to sound like uh, kind of snobby, and I don't mean it to come across like that, but just as you travel and you have breakfast in hotels, you get used to like a, a vast spread of uh, breakfast. Like here's your fruit, here's your veg, here's your cereal, here's your bacon, here's your sausage, your egg. It was it was a you could tell they were taking a, a little more care not to be wasteful. Yeah, you know, the bowls of fruit were just weren't as full. The plates of cheese were just a bit smaller, which is something I think actually everyone should do. We shouldn't be wasteful, but but and the sausages were essentially I would say canned frankfurters that had been fried. Yeah, and I, I, I this all comes down to the import and export. So the import of goods, what they can get in, what they can't, what what you know, how expensive things are, and, and makes sense. I, I'm not criticizing. You just notice a lot of things like this as you're traveling around, and I haven't noticed that anywhere. And I've been to, yeah, I haven't been to everywhere, but I've you know, I've traveled to a lot of South America now, a lot of Asia. I've been to Vietnam, Cambodia. This was the the. This was the first time I'd really experienced something like this, where I'd felt like you could see the the impact of import contr- uh, of import controls or the cost of imports, and 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 other things like uh, this is the first time I felt like I was in a secret state and being watched the whole time, which I probably wasn't, but I felt like I was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how how did it feel when you were buying things did it feel like everything you bought was super cheap just because of the exchange rate and so on like was it like that no again it was mixed we went to a restaurant um on the second day and i put a photo up on twitter and it was funny because it was priced in bolivars but in the menu all the bolivars were stickers and i knew what it was it's like they having to change the prices so often they're just re-sticking them on each time. And that, that yeah. was very obvious. We, that was in East Caracas. And that, I think I paid for dinner for the four of us. I ended up paying in dollars. And it was about $20. I don't think it was that cheap. Now, I don't know also if they have a different price for Westerners. You know, some people do that. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, they bump it up for the uh, the rich guy. Yeah, or just if you're in certain areas. Like when I was in Cambodia, you know, you, you go for a cup of coffee on uh, one of the main streets in um, Siem Reap, and you can pay three, four dollars for a cop- coffee. You can go three streets down, and you can pay fifty cents. They yeah. just know the Westerners don't look down there, and th- they can charge that much. So I don't know if it was that, but but that that was about I think about twenty dollars. I'm when I went to the airport, I, w- I was kind of hungry and I was queuing up, and there was M um, and M's. I was yeah. like, I'm going to have some M and M's. Six dollars for M- no five dollars for a pack of M and M's. Now in the UK. There are like I think there are about eighty p, which is about one dollar. Right, I don't know so what it's, it's kind Australia. of like the cost of smuggling it in and taking it that far. It just bumps up the price for a lot of these foreign items. Yeah, so we asked her. She doesn't smuggle these in. She just imports them from Miami, but she's paying three dollars a pack uh. to bring them in from Miami, and then she's charging five dollars, which which was expensive. But but then you 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 know you'd go to other places and you know things things it was a mix some places things were cheap some places things things were expensive some places were kind of normal and 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 that's to do with also the city the city of Caracas is is a very strange city because it's essentially splits in two it's so weird Stefan so we first on our first morning 
there was this weird coincidence that we flew back in, we flew into Caracas on the same day Guaido flew in. Yeah. So he'd been out in, you know, drumming up support and he flew back in, I think it was from the States, the same day, two hours before us. And he he was harassed and attacked at the airport, which a lot of people are saying, using as evidence, say this isn't anyone who wants to lead. Look, he's been attacked. It was very obvious that that was a setup. You know, really? That so it's what very was set up? Easy. Well, it's very easy for, for if Maduro wants to. I'm not saying this happened. I can't conclusively, conclusively confirm this. But it's very easy for him to block his supporters from coming to receiving and send a bunch of his own henchmen or own supporters to attack him. Yeah. There's no way that's impartial. Um, but, yeah, so we went on on the same day, and I was due to interview this one of his MPs uh, on the first morning. And they were having a meeting of their... I think it's their congress in this town square. Uh, and we went down into East Caracas. And on the surface, East Caracas feels like almost any other cosmopolitan city. You have big billboards for jeans, for insurance, for Pepsi. Yeah, It just felt like any other city. I drove past a car garage that had a Porsche in it, like a Porsche Cayenne. I mean, that's not a cheap car. But yeah. they've got that there because there are people in Venezuela who can afford that. And this is the area of the city which is controlled, essentially controlled by Guaido. This is the, the supporters of Guaido. This is the the wealthier side. When you when you leave, and we went left because we went out to, to one of the slums. When you go into West Caracas, it changes very quickly. You suddenly got propaganda on the walls. This uh, Maduro stencil that you see everywhere um stencils of hugo chavez jr stencils of maduro different propaganda messages covering the walls and then you're suddenly in an area that feels a bit more dangerous um feels like a higher level of poverty Uh, that was when our fixer said to us you know do the window up if you want to film um, when you're making a film, you do this thing called B-roll. I don't know if you know, but that's yeah, all the yeah. stuff that sits in between the interviews. So he was like, do up the windows in here. And I, I felt unsafe there. Yeah, it's a very strange experience. Next up, Stefan asked me more about my experience in Venezuela. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. And first up, it is the mighty, mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. But Why? Well, I've just crossed my first anniversary with Kraken. So firstly, a massive thanks to Jesse and the team for all their support. Wherever I travel, wherever I go, Kraken people come out, they look after me and they make sure I'm okay. So a massive thanks to the Kraken team. Massive thanks to Jesse. Couldn't do this without you. And it's because of Kraken I get to visit places like Venezuela and here now in Turkey and to find out the realities of crypto adoption or certain situations going on in the world. And Kraken themselves are making it easier and easier for people to onboard into Bitcoin and to trade. Last year, they launched their beautiful mobile-first app, allowing you to trade Bitcoin wherever you are. And this is on top of their already market-leading exchange, OTC desk, and other suite of trading products. And they also have industry-leading security and customer service. Look, with all of that, you know there is no better place to trade Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly, this week, but never, ever least, is the amazing BlockFi. Yes, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, and they kicked off the year with a bang. 
Sack recently announced that BlockFi has raised another huge round, $30 million to expand the growth of the company. And with their Sack's back credit card mobile app coming, 2020 is going to be huge. These announcements are on top of their already leading crypto-backed loans and their interest accounts for your Bitcoin, Ether or GUSD, of which I am a customer. And with another month over, I've just received my interest payment, which I always love. I love that moment at the end of the month. I love the fact that my Bitcoin works for me. So yes, 2020 is going to be massive for BlockFi. I'm looking forward to working with them over the year, and I'm really looking forward to getting my Saxback credit card. Now, if you are interested in finding out more about BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So in the West Caracas area, is that more Maduro sympathetic? Well, let's say Maduro controlled. In terms of Maduro sympathetic, this is where it gets really complicated. So, we're essentially, you and I, I'd say, we skirt between content creators and journalists. Sometimes people tell us we're a journalist when they want have high expectations of us, and then when they don't like us, they say you're not a journalist, right? <laughs> so you're in that weird area. But I don't know if you've trained as a journalist. I haven't. I'm aware of some of the responsibilities. I don't always keep to them like I should, but, but you know, let's just say we're content creators slash amateur journalists. I don't know how much you've run into this. I've run into it more with Defiance, but there, this two sides to every story becomes very complicated because there is so much information and misinformation. I've experienced this, especially when I covered Evo Morales in Bolivia when I started looking into the riots in Santiago, there is always this two sides. So let's say with Venezuela, the two sides are, and I'll get into the, the nuance as I understand it, and and I'm fully aware there's a lot I don't understand and it's going to take time, but let's just say there is the Maduro, there's the Maduro side, which is the, the socialist side, and then there is the Guaido side, which is the more capitalist side. Within the Maduro side, you would say they're Maduro sympathizers. Now, you get told by people who support Guaido, supporters of Guaido, that because we stumbled upon this, upon this um, big rally. Did you see the video of the, all the people marching? Yeah, I saw must, the have video. Been must have been a hundred thousand people, all dressed in like red or wearing Chavez t-shirts or Maduro t-shirts, singing about him, and I was like. Well, I don't believe that there isn't a single person in this 100,000 who supports Maduro. I, I just, I don't believe it. Okay. And what I was told by people who are supporters of Guaido, they said, well, these people rely on Maduro to survive. These are people who are being provided with education. They're being provided with jobs or they're being provided with these. Apparently they get these food baskets that come every couple of weeks. If you're told to go and join this rally, you're going to go and join it because you do not want to risk losing your education or your job, because the name of the game, as I said, is survival, and to have a job is lucky. And I was like, okay, fine. So each side, you've got to, you've got to try and be objective and say, are you just saying that because you are against Maduro, or are you saying it because it's the truth? Now, I veer towards certainly being in the more pro-Guido camp, but not fully supportive. And 
I there is clear evidence that Maduro is a dictator and he has control of the press. Like I think there's some very obvious things where you can say this, you know, this person's a dictator. Is there a free press? Are there free and fair elections? You know, the fact that when I went in and I had to hide my job and equipment tells you something about that country. Yeah, for sure. But there are certainly a group of people, the the, the Chavistas, who are pro Maduro because they're pro Chavez. And when Chavez stepped down, you know, he essentially elected, said to the people, I want Maduro to, you know, follow me. And my um, my fixer said, Chavez is the first Venezuelan to win a, 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 an election when he dies with Maduro winning. Essentially, Maduro <laughs> winning was Chavez winning again. And whatever you think of Chavez, he was popular. Yeah. And he was popular because he has populist ideas. Because he came in and Venezuela had a lot of money. The The price of a barrel of oil was $120. And he... You know, he was able to spend a lot of money on social programs. He was able to say, I can help you. I can help the poor. And whether you agree or not with socialism, I know obviously you don't, there are a lot of people who, like, I don't know about you, Stefan, I almost think like almost every country is socialist to some extent. Yeah, that's right. right. Every country is on a socialist spectrum from, you know, the, you've got you've got the kind of socialism that, Bernie Sanders once and Corbyn wanted in the UK to kind of quite capitalist countries and and a lot of the South American countries tend to swing swing wildly from socialist to capitalist but because of that I don't think many of these people have even heard of libertarianism but because of that I think everyone has the ex- expectation that the state should do something for you yeah Every, of course like of course. almost everyone it's built into you right so but I think it's, the thing the thing though is more like you know, they might think, oh, I want one of those, you know, European so-called socialist countries. And they don't necessarily, some of them don't necessarily think of themselves as being socialist, right? No, they don't. uh, You know, so they might have thought, oh, I wanted to be like a Denmark or whatever. They didn't, even the Venezuelans didn't want to be Venezuela, right? Yes. Well, nobody wants that. Well, some people want socialism and then they get it and then they realize they don't want it. And also, we've got to be very careful of the definition of socialism here because, there are social policies, there are social safety nets, and then there is the, the controlling the means of production, which is the which is where things definition. certainly yeah, where things certainly start to break down because the governments are fucking useless. So if you you know Venezuela has all you know has historically always had a lot of poor people anyway, even when it was the richest country in South America, there were a lot of poor people. The slums, uh, I've never seen slums like this because I haven't been visited a lot of these countries. You know they go f- they go on for miles. So you've got a lot of poor people who were were raised up by Chavez, and of course he'll be popular. And if you have everyone having, yeah, well, not everyone, but a large majority of people having some expectation of the state, the person who does does more for you, you're gonna like, right? It's only under Maduro that things have got like really, really fucking desperate. That a lot of the people have realised, you know, mm. you know, he, he he's not he's not the guy, and so. I imagine there are supporters who support him because they want to, because they're Chavistas. There are people who support him because maybe they don't really truly understand the extent of what he's doing or they or they believe the propaganda. There are people who support him because they're evil and 
they fundamentally are just uh, they know what he's doing they know the impact on the people and they're just evil like the people on twitter this guy who keeps messaging me on twitter i end up blocking it he's just i fundamentally be, believe he's educated enough to know what's going on and he still supports majuro he's he's somebody who's evil there are the conspiracy theorists who probably support him because they think this is just the us trying to this is us imperialism trying to trying to start a like another coup what was then interesting was there were a few people I asked privately, do you support Maduro or Guaido off record, off camera? And I did this in the slums and a few times people said neither. And I thought that was really interesting. They, they don't want Maduro, but they don't think Guaido is the answer. And Guaido has also lost support because he came in with these promises. Yeah, I'm I'm going to change, the, yeah, I'm going to change the country, and he hasn't managed to deliver. He hasn't managed to get the army on side because you 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 need the men with guns, right? So that that was something that I thought was pretty interesting. But yeah, so I think there's, I think these situations are, are very complicated and there are a, a, a lot of different opinions and a lot of nuances which you don't always get. It, it isn't binary. Yeah, and uh, tell us a little bit about the slums. Like exactly, you know, what was the situation like there? What kind of living scenario was it like? What was the safety and security situation there like? Yeah, so that was the probably the scariest part of the trip because... The the way my uh, fixer explained it, and he said, "There's a if you went in on your own, you'd be an idiot. Yeah. There's like a it's like an eighty twenty. You got an eighty percent chance of getting some kind of trouble, kidnapped, mugged, killed, whatever." He said, "The odds flip if you come with me. It's you know eighty percent chance of getting out." I was like, "Well, well, well hold on. <laughs> you saying there's a twenty percent chance we might not get out?" And he's like, "No, no, no, no. I'm just you know, broad numbers." So I was like, I was already nervous going in. Um, the slums are as you would expect, and like a lot of South America, everything is, all the windows, all the doors are, are, are iron gates and iron bars because there's a lot of you know, theft. So I was nervous going in already, and we parked up and we had to walk from the car to this lady's house where I went to interview, and we had to go down the side street, and I was just kind of like, is this one of these scenarios where someone could just jump out and kidnap me or something could happen? And but perhaps I was over nervous, but a, a lot of people have said to me when going to Venezuela, "Be safe." You know, do you really want to go there? So I don't know if I I was being naive or over because I I didn't know how to feel, but I felt nervous. Uh, so we went into this lady's house. I interviewed her, uh, talked about what is life like. Um, she, you know, she she had her two children there. It's a small house, one bedroom. Uh, tiny little front room, no electricity, no TV, as as you would expect. A poor living. Her f- children were happy as anything, which was great. Uh, had a lovely conversation with her about what life was like, and the most interesting thing I took from that was the petro. I <laughs> say so she had the petro. Ah, uh, so like, the the mother of shit guns. I was like, so you've got the petro, and she said, yes, I've got it. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how I meant to use it, but I I got given because essentially everyone got an airdrop to them. Yeah, I and see, she did, yeah. she didn't she didn't know what it was or how to use it. She has to earn a small amount of money because she has to survive and she has to feed her children, and also she has to pay for a certain amount for their schooling. I think it might be for their books or something. I can't remember, but. But yeah, that that was the most nervous I felt. And then it was after that we got pulled over by the police. Where, where did they pull you over? Just a question, because it was a car with black blacked out windows, 
coming out of the slums. So the initial suspicion is that this could be criminal, could be moving contraband, who are you, blah, blah, blah. And then they realised we were tourists and they wanted to know what we were doing, where we'd been, and our fixer explained, we're tourists, we'd been to see the slum. He said, well, what's on the cameras? Is there any anti-government messages? If there are, you're going to be arrested and the cameras will be confiscated, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he was explaining it to me at the same time. And then um, and then he managed to talk them out of doing it. And I was obviously scared. Not, I wasn't scared about being arrested because I assumed I'd just be deported. I, I just didn't want to lose the footage. I really, really yeah. didn't want to lose the footage because... Yeah, you know, it's important footage. So, but he talked them out of it, which was amazing. And and I was trying to talk to the policeman as well, being translated. And I, I yeah, you know, I only got to ask him what a question. But I was like, well, you know, what's it like being a policeman in in Caracas? And he just said, it is very tough. It's a very tough job. But they let us go without checking the cameras, which I thought was weird. Why why ask the question? Why not check the cameras? Perhaps they were too busy. Now, there is a scenario where we probably could have bribed our way out of it. You know, I've, uh, the fixer said to me, um, the fixer said to me, said most likely scenarios you can bribe your way out of this. It might be $500, whatever, but you could bribe your way out of it. So I was like, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah so that, that was that. That was that day. We did go back to the slums again the next day. We went to another humanitarian project, which was a place which supports single mothers. So there are a lot of there are a lot of situations where people uh, have children, get pregnant, and, and the man just doesn't care and just leaves the the woman to yeah. fend for herself. Yeah. So you've got a lot of single mothers who have to feed their children, get them to school, and try and work, which is really tough. So this is a this is a place which can support I think up to three hundred a day. So we, again, we went and visited them. Again, I was kind of nervous going in. Um, but that was a that was a lovely experience actually. The kids were all really happy. The mothers were all really welcoming, and I ended up spending quite a bit of time speaking to the lady who runs the place. Who was an absolute saint. She goes there every day. And the the really interesting part of that is when I interviewed her. I've got this on camera. I'll share it with you, Stefan. At the end, I, I I can't remember the final question. I asked her something like, you know, what what is needed? What's going on here? And she she was replying in Spanish and being translated, but she ended up bringing me kind of to tears without me even understanding her words. Just by the sentiment of how she, uh, just by the sentiment of how she spoke, she became so impassioned, and she her she became very emotional, and which in turn made me emotional, even though I couldn't understand what she was saying. Yeah, again, yeah, you could sense it. Yeah, again, obviously a desperate situation. Another place that's relying hugely on donations from people to survive. Um, yeah, very, very desperate. And th- and that's where I got a lot of my reality about how can Bitcoin help Venezuela. Yeah, I was keen to get to this topic as well because, you know, we've spoken a little bit about, you know, your experience going through Venezuela and the border town and then we, let's say, juxtapose that against the typical like, okay, Bitcoin fixes this, why everyone can use Lightning and, you know, uh, and uh, uh, what about like Bitcoin mining and what about people just using Bitcoin? But what was what was the reality on the ground? So I can't say exactly what's happening because I, I was there for two days. I didn't go to every single possible place to see if they accept Bitcoin, to see how people are using Bitcoin. So I, my starting point was common sense. So common sense says to me 
that Bitcoin is not useful for the majority of people because they don't all have mobile phones. They don't all have data services. In the provinces, provinces you do have blackouts. They keep the power going in Caracas pretty well, but you do have blackouts. And if you're living on $5 a month, the last thing you need is another volatile currency. The reason they have the dollar is because the Bolivar is, is, is volatile. So the last thing you need is a, another volatile currency. You, and you don't want to be paying exchange fees. So if you're living on $5 a month, Bitcoin is almost certainly useless to you. Completely yeah. useless. And Right. And and it's just most, I, as I as take from what you're saying, essentially very, very few people are in a position to use Bitcoin as a savings technology, as you're saying, because they're living hand to mouth. Hand to mouth. And they don't have a savings culture. That was a question I asked Crypto Bastardo, uh, Javier. He said, we don't have a culture of saving here. So people won't be using it to save. He also, also my fixer said, quite interestingly, we are probably, we've probably got one of the most digitized financial systems in the world. They've got an equivalent of Venmo for Bolivars because it's probably, if, if you keep having to reprint the money every time because of inflation you, you need a, like a new denomination you need your billion dollar note your trillion dollar note it gets expensive reprinting and getting the money into circulation you might as well digitize it so they do have this kind of venmo style app which a lot of people use but the the money the bolivar is a hot potato you've got to spend it before it loses its value so if the majority of people if the average salary is five dollars a month Bitcoin really isn't useful for people there. And then this is where I took issue with the da the Dash folks because the way I see it is Dash Core is fundamentally a business. And if Dash Core is fundamentally a business, it ha you know, it has to I think it I don't know how it works, but they essentially they have to like uh they get their funding from Dash, they from the master so what I don't know how it works cuz I don't care that much, but I've seen the videos the marketing videos that Dash have done, which show people ripping up money in banks and such and such. And it gives you the impression that Dash is a really great solution. But Dash is, isn't a useful... And and I say Bitcoin as well. Like a few people... I got, I got some negative reactions to this. Oh, he's just a maxi. And I'm saying, no, Bitcoin isn't a solution. There are examples of remittance. So anybody can come back at me and say, oh, you're wrong, Bitcoin is being used. Yes, I agree, it is being used. But it can't solve the problem, and it, the usage is limited. And I'll come to the use, why why it's limited. But Bitcoin is not a medium of exchange, unless you're using Lightning Network. But even then, we we still know a lot of people aren't really using it as a medium of exchange. It, it is a store of value. That's the store of value, or or a or a, a, a remittance tool, right? That isn't going to serve anyone hardly anyone a purpose in Venezuela right now. There's a very small number of people who have that. It's not so much even have the need who are just using it. So if if it's not a medium exchange, then Dash is completely useless. And Dash isn't a store of value. You look at the charts. It's not like Bitcoin where Bitcoin is volatile, but the long-term time trajectory is up. It's Dash going isn't. up, yeah. yeah Dash, Dash is like every other shitcoin. It's had that spike and then it's... It's just starts going down versus yeah. Bitcoin or yeah. versus the US dollar as well, potentially. Exactly. And I got an open letter written to me by the, the Dash Core CEO and all his arguments for Dash, they're sound arguments. We can't get changed, so the divisibility is useful. Yeah, all his arguments that he came up with 
were valid arguments. But he's post-rationalizing the need. The, rea the reality is very different. Yes, they might have a handful of users. Yes, they might have some wallets created. Yes, they might have solved some use cases. But to say and to push this as a useful currency for the people of Venezuela, it isn't. It might be useful for a few niche people in East Caracas, but it is not a useful, and it's massively disingenuous. And, and this just comes back to the traditional behavior of a shitcoiner, where it's about marketing and none, none of them ever want to admit they're wrong. And that's where I think Bitcoiners sometimes differ. You're willing to admit you're wrong. Like I, I went there thinking Bitcoin would be great for Venezuelans, and it could be. But ultimately, I went there saying I was wrong about Bitcoin in Venezuela. People, The name of the game is survival. Get me bolivars and dollar and let me eat. <laughs> I don't fucking need Bitcoin right now. And, and I, you very rarely hear that from a shitcoin. Okay, you know what? We were wrong. <laughs> We got right. this totally wrong, yeah. and and they're not going to change their mind. And if they hear this and they listen to this, they they're going to argue back with me, and they're going to tweet about me, and they're going to say stupid things like "You were only there for two days. What do you know? You see a lot in two days." And common sense kicks in. You only have to you only have to look at the facts of the average salary, go to a slum, and see what the lives are like for people to know cryptocurrency. A vol another volatile cryptocurrency is not what is required. Is not going to help the Venezuelan. Now, yeah, and you spoke to people who are you know living there day to day, so they yeah. had the experience as well, right? Well, you you, ha you have to be honest with yourself. If I came back and said Bitcoin is this great opportunity for the people of Venezuela, I'm spread. I'm, I'm spreading propaganda in a situation which is already suffering from propaganda. It's it's just too it's disingenuous. Now. Let's go to the reality of where Bitcoin is being used and it does have a purpose. It's very useful for the educated and the relatively more wealthy. So I went to visit Crypto Bastardo. I saw some mining rigs. I saw I saw their setup. If you if you can get mining equipment into Venezuela and you can mine, your electricity is ten bucks a month, basically free or basically cheap, free. So you're essentially mining for free outside of the cost of the equipment, but you're essentially mining yeah. for free. So that is kind of free money. And the small amount of Bitcoin you might mine in Bolivar terms is very high. That is a use case. Trading. If you are trading out there and you know how to trade, that is a use case because you can make good money trading if you know what you're doing. If you are supporting either end of the remittance and taking a fee, you, are, you can make money. But the the main use case of which majority of people of Venezuela can't use, but someone like Crypto Bastardo can or somebody else, is they can hold Bitcoin and every week they withdraw the amount of Bitcoin the Bolivar they need from their Bitcoin and they use that to survive. Now that that is a use case we've known about to avoid the effects of hyperinflation. We knew that existed. But that is not going to be used by somebody in the slum who's on $5 a month. What, what are they going to do? Save a dollar and then you know, convert 50 cents worth into Bolivar and pay it to 20 cents fee? It's, it's not going to happen. All right, let's get them onto a lightning network. Let's get them a, a breeze wallet or something. I mean, it's just, you know, we're getting into the realms of ludicrous here. We've got to be practical. If you are in East Caracas or I don't know if there are any other provinces where there's perhaps a middle or upper class, but if you've got, if you're surviving on more than five dollars, I don't know, say a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars a month, you've got a firstly you've got a good standard of living. But 
it makes sense for you then to to have three hundred dollars of Bitcoin because even if Bitcoin drops twenty percent in a month, it's You're still doing better than inflation. <laughs> exactly, and every time we withdraw that twenty five cent fee, I don't know what the the fees are. What are the fees right now? What are, what are people paying? Oh, like I mean, a lot of bit like Bitcoin fees. Yeah. a lot of them are going, still going through it like one sat per buy, right? Right. So, I mean, right now. But so, I mean, obviously, we anticipate that will rise. But but yeah, but it's yeah. usable for you if you're like, right? I need ten dollars over the next month, or twenty dollars, or fifty dollars. You can ignore that fee, whereas the person on a dollar can't. So, so the the kind of the way to summarize it is, if you to say there's no use for Bitcoin in Venezuela, that's 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 a lie. That of course there is. But if you can say it's for the majority of people, again, that's also a lie because it isn't because there's practical problems. It really is a tool of the, the the wealthy and the educated. It's not a tool of of the the poor, like the common man, the, yeah, the common man who's who who really is thinking, how do I eat today? How do I how do I survive today? Getting this message out has been really interesting because they're, they're, I did re- I have received a lot of criticism, but I have also received a number of people going, no, that's absolutely honest. What Pete is saying is the absolute truth. Yeah. So yeah. So I think it's one of those things where maybe elsewhere in South America, there may be more of a reason and more people who are, let's say, in a position to usefully you know, benefit from Bitcoin, whether they mine it, whether they, you know, maybe they have uh, access to smartphones and electricity and they can have, you know, Phoenix wallet and do these lightning transactions and whatever. But I think to your point, it's to, it, when we're considering Venezuela, we might summarize that as saying, okay, in very marginal or certain scenarios, if you can mine Bitcoin or if you are, let's say, a tech savvy trader type who's on the border, kind of taking advantage of that remittance corridor and the smuggling and so on, okay, maybe there's, there's a case there. Yeah. But it would be exaggerating to say that the common man, the everyman in Venezuela has realistically access to Bitcoin and uses Bitcoin. Most people are living in a hand-to-mouth scenario where they are not able to effectively make use of savings technology. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly, in a position. Everyone can benefit from Bitcoin, but are you in the position? Do you have the infrastructure? Do you have the technology? Do you have the skills education education yeah. do you have the ability almost certainly majority don't have all those factors in place but whereas you wherever you go to someone like argentina it has a, a, a long history of uh, inflation problems you know the coralita where essentially all the savings were wiped out they might be heading to another one they get it but the country's in a better, much better position than venezuela everyone probably has a mobile phone and a data plan uh, they're used to their money being wiped out, but but they would understand it better, and they're more in a position. They have the infrastructure. Chile, the same. I haven't I haven't been to you know, Colombia again, the same. So I think in a position, you, you've worded it perfectly. Yeah, I would say yeah, you nailed it there. Awesome. So uh, look, how uh, do you think people should? You know, let's say you're a Bitcoin person listening and. You know, how, how would you think of it like what, what they should say when they're telling people about, you know, say Venezuela versus South America from a Bitcoin point of view? Yeah, really good question. So in terms of Venezuela, I, I'm still educating myself. I'm really trying to understand the 
political side of things at the moment because it feels like there is this binary choice. Either you support a dictator or you're supporting an American coup. Now, right now, I'm yeah, America has a history of failed coups. I'm not sure if a coup is is would be the worst situation in the world if it is a coup. And also, is it a coup or is it somebody seeking support from America? And if is it America that just only want to support Venezuela because they want access to the oil reserves? I, I understand all those suspicions. I understand why people think that. At the same time, we have a government there, which is a dictatorship, which is essentially a narco state, which does not have free and fair elections, which does not have an open economy, where people are living in very desperate situations, that has extermination squads, whether or not they are only killing the criminals and improving safety, they have extermination squads going out and murdering people. So... I'm doing my best to really educate and understand the, the situation myself, and I think, I think that's what most people should should do is really try and understand the situation in terms of pushing the Venezuelan Bitcoin narrative. Is that the people who need it the most are the ones who can't get it and can't afford it, right? So yeah, it isn't it isn't the great use case that people think. I think we need to stop perpetuating this narrative. I. Th- it's made me try and be a little bit more responsible with the things I say. And even some of my tweets, sometimes I'm like having to think, am I being responsible here? Is this objective? Am I being fair? Have, have I have I seen the whole side of this? But there are people who can benefit from it, but they're, they're a scaled-down version of the, the people who can benefit in a lot of countries. I think if you want to help Venezuela now and you want to use your Bitcoin, then send some Bitcoin to an NGO. <laughs> If you want to help Venezuela now, then try and support the the movement towards democracy. Now, I know, I know in your world, democracy is soft socialism, but the, that to me is one step better than than, than a dictation, dictatorship. And I think the country needs free and fair elections. And I think, well, I, I don't just think it, I know it. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. I would also say to people, be very, very careful of the propaganda and the misinformation you might see in retweet. Uh, again, when I went into Venezuela and I explained the situation, there were a lot of people who weren't uh, Maduro propagandists, people who are Bitcoiners or people who follow me on Twitter, who started retweeting the footage of Guaido at the airport being attacked and saying, oh, this isn't somebody who's supported by the Venezuelan people. You have to be very aware there's a high chance, whilst I can't prove it, that that is a stage situation. That is the creation of propaganda to make Guaido look like he's not liked. I think I think that that's something you have to be very, very careful about. I, I, I'm, I've retweeted t- things at times where people have come back to me and said, well, you haven't considered this, and I've realised I've retweeted something without actually realising what I'm retweeting. I think that's uh, important. But I think if you want to help Venezuela, really, you just... They need financial support and, and being charitable is probably the most important thing people could do right now. Right, whether that's USD or Bitcoin, right? Whatever um, it is. But I guess your mess, yeah, and your message is uh, basically be wary that you can be manipulated. Your confirmation bias can cause you to basically boost and retweet things that align with your views that are not necessarily the truth or not necessarily like an objective reality. And it's you sort of have to 
be a bit clever about how you sort the wheat from the chaff and understand what's going on. Yeah. I suppose the last question I would have for you well, on so this topic can I just, is: Can I just throw in there? I I went in with my own com- I went in with my own bias. I went in anti Maduro, pro Guaido, and I went in thinking Guaido is the rightful president of Venezuela. And I, whilst I like and still favour Guaido, I did come back thinking. I, I, I guess I came out thinking there is more support for Maduro than I, I, I expected and less support for Guaido than I expected. And now I just think the country needs open, free and fair elections more than anything. And, yeah, I went in with my own bias and, and I'm trying to learn to myself to be as objective as possible. Yeah, right. I, I, it's difficult to say because it could also be the fact that, let's say, Maduro has the state in his favor and the propaganda is in his yeah. favor so all these people believe in him when he's actually not the best situation or the best choice for them as well so i mean it's it's a it's a complicated question dude uh, na- navigating I, all this stuff and all the misinformation the articles online the tweets whether the sources are correct it is really really hard journalism like i'm i don't consider myself a professional journalist but journalism is very very hard now and it comes with a lot of pressure and a lot of accusations and it's a tough job right uh, okay so my last question on okay. this whole uh thing is would you go back and would you do an update tour in the future yeah so that's that's a really good last question i tell you why it's, I don't know if I should go back. I want to go back. I loved the country. I thought the people were amazing. I th- the food was incredible. Uh, I, I'd like to see a, a prosperous Venezuela. I'd like to see Venezuela without all this bullshit. I don't know if I've put myself on a list or whether I... <laughs> or, or whether I'm overthinking how important I am. I don't think I'm important, but I just don't know. What, what I'm trying to say is I don't know at what point you put yourself on the list. I don't know if they have a list at immigration that says this person can't come in or if this person comes, let's arrest them straight away. That could be anybody. I just don't know. I don't know if I have a high enough profile that that matters. I don't think I do. I'm, I'm not saying I'm like some high profile person that matters. I just don't know if low level people like me still get added to a list. That I don't know. I don't know if it would be now dangerous for me to go because I've I've left Venezuela making accusations about Maduro, calling it a narco state. Probably it would be irresponsible for me to go back. Probably. At the same time, I kind of want to go back. I think there's more of a story to tell. I would like to go to the border town the within side Venezuela. I'd like to go to the provinces. I just don't know if they're too, that's too risky now. Um, you have to have a certain amount of responsibility, especially with children. Uh, they were nervous about me going, and to go back might not might be too risky. So I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I would like to though. Yeah, maybe it's a question of time, right? Maybe you wouldn't do it in one year, but say five years have gone, and now it's time to you know go back. And maybe there's been a real change, and now maybe. There is a reason for people to use lightning or some something else has changed about the scenario that maybe it makes more sense. I tell you, I'll throw in one last thing, Stefan, as well. I've learned so much about Bitcoin by going to places and seeing how people are using it and seeing the reality. There, El Salvador, Chile, Bolivia, yeah, going to these places and really you know, doing that first thing. I, I mean, somebody else told me to do this, but getting in the taxi driver and asking about the local money, how it works. And then trying to understand how 
socially people inter- interact with each other try and understand the technology people have then seeing them use it like in el salvador where people are living in mud huts and, and i'm expecting them to have a billfoddle buried buried in the mud in their hut is just ridiculous <laughs> but we talk about in the west and in australia uk us bitcoin is a savings tool and it's a spe- speculative tool we talk about the real use cases of censorship resistance seizure resistance in tend to be poorer countries or countries which tend to be under authoritarian rule. But by going there and seeing it, the the reality is a bit different. And, and that understanding of how people can use it or how they should use it or the level of education, you find out a lot more in these places. And I think there is a... I think a lot of Bitcoiners have a real blind spot to, to the reality in these, these countries. And I think that's a a really important thing that more of us visit, more of us experience it, more of us try and learn because being self-sovereign in a dangerous, violent, poor country is very different from a New York apartment. (laughs) It's going to be a very different experience. And I don't think we have the education, the infrastructure or the empathy for, for how these people will use Bitcoin, right? Yeah, right. But at the same time, I guess uh, uh, here I'm thinking, let's call this an Alex Gladstein point. He makes the point that there are billions of people in this on this earth who live under an authoritarian government. Now, they may not have the education, the wealth, the tool sets, the scenario, but over time, we should anticipate that more of them will use Bitcoin. And oh, so certainly. maybe not today, but it'll come. Yeah, no, certainly I think we do. And I think that we can get this message to these people and we can teach and we can educate. But I think we need to just to have some understanding about some of the practicalities so perhaps we can provide tools like if if you live in a mud hut how are you going to back up your private keys and what if you lose your private key or you know is there a, a some kind of multi-sig solution which is really easy to use that suits them what are what are the scenarios whereby if you hyperbitcoin if you have hyperbitcoinization in a poor area and then if all the all the local criminals or gangsters realize everyone's money is on their phone does that mean everyone's going to have a gun to their head every day uh, asking for their bitcoin there's some of the things that i just need thinking about i think there's a wider debate and I, I, I'd like to open up this conversation. I, I, these shows, I started just tagging them on my website as Bitcoin around the world. But these shows have a lower than average download for me. I know if, you know, you know, it's like if you get Chewed or Safety, you're going to get a lot of downloads. And you get somebody you haven't heard of, you get a lower, lower level of downloads. And going to these locations, you've got people you've not heard of. So I know my downloads are going to suffer I'm going to pay more money, spend more money, and my downloads are going to suffer covering lo- these locations. But I think it's important. So I'm, I'm going to do a bit more of this because I think, I mean, if you only care about number go up, then you should care about this because these the, there is, we're talking about billions of people who could use this. And, and if, you, if you don't care about number go up, you care about the use case and how this can change people's lives, you should still care about these 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 people and how they use it. So I think these use cases... Uh, are really important. I'm going to spend more time on it. Yeah, look, certainly interesting stories, just early, you know. Yeah, very early. But appreciate you doing this. Yeah, no worries, of course, of course. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's uh, that's basically it in terms of the questions I had. You know Maybe what's going to happen now? The people are going to say, Stefan should host the show every week, Pete. You should fuck off. 
<laughs> Introducing the new host of What Bitcoin Did, it's Stefan Levera. Stefan Levera, yeah. No, look, firstly, appreciate appreciate you as a, as a colleague and a friend. Uh, people probably don't know this, but we chat quite regularly in the background. I'm always picking your brain. and Yeah, and, I mean, we compare notes and, you know... Share ideas on things. No, but I appreciate you having you there as a as a helpful hand and and doing this. So I'm a big fan of your work. But just thank you for doing this because I wanted to, I wanted to get this out. I wanted to explain it. I can't. We've done what an hour and a half now. I think we were meant to do an hour, and I couldn't tell this in a tweet. I could have written it out as a as a post, but I I felt it needed telling and and explaining away. Was it useful for you? Yeah, I think so. I think it's useful to, I mean, even for me, I, you know, I consider myself a Bitcoin advocate and it's useful that we tell the right story, right? We're not telling, we're not overselling and we're not underselling. Yeah. We're telling kind of, here's the right, we're pitching it down the middle in terms of here's like a precise or accurate version of what's going on and where are the real opportunities. And I think today we have done that and hopefully uh, it's been interesting for the listeners. Well, you should tell people how to uh, how to find you because I've got a lot of new listeners now with this beginner's guide. And uh, once they've got through the beginner's guide, they're probably going to want the more advanced and technical and educated stuff. And the next natural place to go is the Stefan Levera podcast. So, Stefan, tell people how they can find you. Of course. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, StefanLevera.com is the website. You can find me on all the major podcatcher apps if you search Stefan Levera podcast at Stefan Levera on Twitter. And I've also got one more resource, which is ministryofnodes.com.au. So that is an educational website that me and my co-founder, Katan, we teach people how to do Bitcoin, right? How do you hold your keys? How do you run your node? So we run webinars. We provide kind of private coaching over Zoom calls or sessions if people would like that. And we just write articles as well. So yeah, so basically you can find me online if you type Stefan Levera. Awesome, man. Well, look, appreciate you doing this. Have a great well, it's weekend now coming up. Yeah, have a great weekend and I'll see you soon. I'll see you at Bitcoin 2020 as long as coronavirus doesn't prevent our travel. <laughs> That's right. Before coronavirus gets us all. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, how was that? What did you think of that one? Is it useful to have me explain these situations with a different host, someone like Stefan, to question me and get it across? Please let me know. Your feedback would be useful. I did something similar yesterday after visiting the Turkish border situation with Greece. I put some stuff on Twitter, as ever got a bunch of very good responses and good discussion, but also some kind of misinformation. So I did a periscope for that. If these things are useful, please let me know. Happy to continue doing them. Now, I knew after my trip to Venezuela, I had to discuss what I saw and how in reality, the people there are just trying to survive, feed themselves and feed their families, which is the vast majority of people. And while people have to use the Bolivar, the US dollar is the favorite currency at the moment. Um, right now, there isn't any such strong indicator for this to change towards cryptocurrencies for me or Bitcoin. Now, for sure, Bitcoin can help, but those it can help are limited by a number of practical realities. Firstly, education and infrastructure. So it really, for me, was a tool of the middle and upper class. And when I say middle and upper class, that is a relative situation within Venezuela. But it really is used by those to fight hyperinflation and for some to use to send money back into the country. But the vast majority of the country are very poor, just living on a few dollars a month and with little to no culture saving 
and cryptocurrencies generally being a poor medium of exchange due to a number of other factors from volatility to transaction confirmations. There's little evidence that they will dethrone the bolivar and all the dollar for this purpose. Now, a couple of those points there, I'm aware other cryptocurrency heads will dive in and say, oh, well, yeah, but our coin sells this, blah, blah, blah. I really couldn't promote any of those coins and any of those use cases. Now, one thing is for sure, shitcoins like Dash are not becoming widely as used as the marketing makes it seem, or some of their leaders will say. There is little to no demand for cryptocurrency in the country, and I expect following this, if they listen to this show, they will throw a whole bunch of rejections out there. They will show well-argued points about the things that their cryptocurrencies can solve. They will claim, I didn't do enough research, or I was only there for two days. Look, the truth is, you only need to spend a day in East and West Caracas and use a little bit of common sense to see where Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies can help and also get a picture of who have different agendas, who have a goal to promote their cryptocurrency ahead of the actual need. It's kind of... I don't know. I find it kind of dishonest. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview and hopefully this helped you understand what it's like and what is happening in Venezuela, but also on the border town of Cucuta. I would love to have spent more time there. With more time, I'm sure I would have learned a whole bunch more. Yeah, I've got a feeling my conclusions would have been pretty similar. If you do have any questions or feedback on this, do feel free to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, massive thanks to anyone who supports the show, whatever you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I really do appreciate all the support I get with this, all the support I've had for the last few years. Now, if you do want to help, if you listen to the show every week or you listen to the old show and you think I want to help Pete out, it's all up on my website. Just head over to whatbitcoindid.com, click on the sports section. Everything is explained to you there. As I said, I am out in Turkey at the moment. I'm covering the border situation with Greece. I'm going to be here for a couple more days and then I'm going to be heading back to the UK. I am postponing my trip to Africa just due to the coronavirus stuff. I just don't think it's the right time to be traveling, especially having two children. But I will be at Bitcoin 2020 at the end of the month so yeah lots happening as ever but if you've got any questions do feel free to reach out to me apart from that have a great week and i will speak to you soon